Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be alive, courtesy of your grace and mercy. We humbly are here before you tonight to learn your word. We know we're nothing without you. And we thank you for making the ultimate sacrifice for us. For sending your son down out of heaven for the sole purpose of suffering and dying in our place for our judgment. What greater love is there than that? Help us never be familiar with your love and your grace and your mercy. And that you've proved it to us once for all at the cross. Father, we ask that you bless us right now this evening. Have your spirit guide us and teach us. Open our hearts and minds and help us concentrate on your word, which is perfect. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen. The introduction of the God-man, John 1, 1 through 18, part 3. I hope you've been enjoying this powerful introduction to our Lord uh, in John 1. And I was thinking about it. To me, it's, it's like a dramatic introduction on a grand stage, like the Apostle John being the announcer with the microphone in his hand and listing off all the accolades and credentials of the Lord and revealing him even to us, uh, to things we didn't know about him before he showed up on the scene and revealing these things to angels as well at the same time. So tonight we'll finish this series on this passage. Uh, turn again to John 1, verse 1. And I hope you go home this weekend and just read through this passage a couple times and see what the Spirit has built up in your soul. If you've been here all three you know, lessons, um, you've probably learned things that you don't even realize you've learned or taken in. And if you just have that private time between you and the Lord in his word, see what he shows you now that you didn't see before in this passage. So again, John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or overcome it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, 
for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained or declared him. So as we finish or attempt to finish this prologue today, in verses 1 through 18, let's review some key points before we move on. We had a lot of review on Tuesday from Sunday's lesson, which was largely about the first half of this passage. But there are a few key points I want to go over one more time here, and then we're going to dive into the end part. First of all, regarding the Spirit and the Word, this was one emphasis that kind of, you know, was a surprise in a way, as an emphasis, because it's not really directly in this passage. But regarding the Spirit and the Word, God's Spirit, where His very thinking lies, that is what makes God who He is, just like any of us who were created in His image. And thus, God has given us His Word, truth in John 4, 24, which is his very thinking written down for our benefit. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says this is the mind of Christ. Who is the word? So once again, these things are intimately and intricately woven together. There's a oneness between them. Again, God's spirit, where God's very thinking lies, that's what makes up God or makes God who he is, just like any of us who were created in his image. And thus God has given us his word, truth, which is his very thinking, written down for our benefit. Then we also met the God-man in this passage. When you look at it, you know, big picture, what an introduction it is for Jesus Christ, who we now must conclude is the Lord God from the Old Testament, revealed in the flesh. And just some passages that show, show us this are Isaiah 40, verse 3, Luke 1, 68 and 76, John 1, 1 through 3, and John 1, 14. These things reveal his deity in full, if you will, in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you missed part 1 and 2, Sunday and Tuesday's lesson, please go to the website and review the evidence for yourself. But... It's up to you to seek him and then to also take in these scriptures with the faith of a child. So the Lord shined the light of God's unconditional love into the world. We talked about that a lot on Tuesday, the light being God's love, God's very presence, and God is love. And that is now known to all men through the God-man Jesus Christ. It's known in a different way than before he came, as in the Old Testament. Now he enlightens every man, according to John 1.9. Turn again in your Bibles to Matthew 5, verse 43. Matthew 5.43. So now we can know God even by a person who lived among us. And even though we haven't met him personally, it's not the right time we were born, I guess, right? For us it is, but you know what I mean? We weren't there when he was on earth. But men and eyewitnesses who wrote about this and wrote about him were there and witnessed God's pure goodness in a person for all to see how to live, how to think, 
and how to love, most importantly. And we, we know this also from God our Father above. Look at Matthew 5:43. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You want to be like your Father in heaven? You want to copy him, so to speak? Um, imitate the one you admire? Think of the way the Father's treated you, by the way. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I mean, think of the unrighteous. Think of some of the characters, if you will, in the world that we would call unrighteous. Some very evil men. God allows his sun to shine on them and his rain to fall on their crops also. This is the general revelation through nature itself even God enlightening every man and Jesus Christ did this in the flesh for all to see when he came onto the earth so the son of God Jesus Christ came for all men didn't he just like the father lets the sun shine on all men good and evil the son of God came for all men that's the beauty of God's impartiality of God's impartial love. It's truly uh, beyond what we could imagine and dream. And when you consider your own sin, you should see that being even more beautiful. Because he didn't pick and choose. He didn't say, you know, I'm, I'm going to exclude you because of your types of sin. I don't like your type of sin. He literally came for all. So go back to uh, John 1, verse 9. And let's be reminded how he came for all, even though all did not receive him. John 1, verse 9. There was the true light, talking about Jesus Christ, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. So here we have the creator of heaven and earth, which we see comparing scripture to scripture. It is Jesus Christ, God the Son. The creator of heaven and earth visited planet earth himself in a human form, revealing his grace to man. We could talk about that forever and how to understand that. He revealed his grace, God's perfect grace to man. And then man doubted who he was even though there was plenty of heads up, as we talked about on Tuesday. Uh, even God's own people, the Jews, did not recognize him, did not accept him, as they should have known it was him from their Old Testament prophets, which they claimed to so closely follow. But they picked and choose what was to their good pleasure. On the board, Jews, open your eyes. These were his own people that he came to that did not receive him. Your own prophets predicted a child would be born in the tiny town of Bethlehem in Micah 5.2, and his name would be called Mighty God and Eternal Father in Isaiah 9.6. So 
Turn again to Micah 5, verse 2. Let's see this again with our eyes. <clears throat> and remember these passages also as we're approaching Christmas celebration. And these are things that would be wonderful to share with the right person that you might encounter who might be ready. Again, your own prophets, Jews, they predicted a child would be born in the tiny town of Bethlehem and his name would be called Mighty God and Eternal Father. This shouldn't be a surprise. Micah 5.2 But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This isn't a creature. This isn't a created being that had a beginning, like angels or men. This is someone who existed from the days of eternity, which could only be God alone. Turn to Isaiah 9, 6. Isaiah 9, 6. Would this child just be a special man? Would he, would he just be a prophet? Well, the prophet Isaiah said, no. This child would be God in the flesh. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Doesn't get much clearer than that, does it? Unless you're arrogant and don't want to accept the truth. Again on the board, Jews, open your eyes. Your own prophets predicted a child would be born of a virgin and his name would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, look at Isaiah 7.14, since you're already in Isaiah. Again, this should not be a surprise. It only is to people that don't believe the word. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Jews, what sign will he give you by grace? Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And we saw in Matthew chapter 1, Emmanuel means God with us. Not a God with us, not a uh, type of God with us. It means God with us. And this was fulfilled when Mary gave birth to Jesus. Yet the majority of Jews, when Jesus came, they turned a blind eye to the message of their own prophets. And as we talked about on Tuesday, the light was too bright for them. Some people don't want to accept the light because it reveals their darkness, their ugliness, their failure. On the board, we call that turning a blind eye. It's because of pride, arrogance. Pride has a way of pushing away God's goodness. Just as even we believers fall into quenching the spirit from time to time so we can continue to get our own way. But it's simply foolishness. It is just the, the definition of foolishness. I'm going to ignore what I can see is the truth. I'm going to pretend I don't see it. Or I'm going to make up an excuse so I have a little bit of doubt left so I can continue in my own ways. Don't we all do that? Who doesn't do that time to time? 
We love to turn a blind eye. The flesh does. And that's pride. That's arrogance. But if we humble ourselves before the Lord, what's he give us? Grace, right? God gives grace to the humble. But pride, it's like taking away grace or not accepting grace that's right in front of you on a platter. Many Jews chose to continue to try to please God on their own, on their own merits, not submitting to God's righteousness, trying to create their own righteousness. And this is the problem today still, in our own country even. People trying to create their own righteousness, like build up this little tower that they built. I didn't even need God's help. Look. And I think God will like this because it's better than most people. And God says, you fool. You're a sinner. I can't accept anything from you. You're a sinner. You're guilty. You deserve death. That's what the word says. So you need to turn away from your own righteousness. You need to turn to my righteousness. You need to subject yourself or submit or surrender to my righteousness. And you know the funny thing, I was thinking about this today. When you surrender to God's righteousness, it's not an embarrassment. It's not a, um, a condemnation. It's a victory. It's a gift that is given to you because you surrender, which doesn't make sense to the human mind, right? Our pride gets in the way. We think it's an embarrassment. We think it's a shame. I'm not good enough, so I can't surrender that I need God's righteousness. But God's not telling you to surrender to beat you down. He's telling you to surrender to accept his grace, you know. It's amazing. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Romans 10, verse 1. Let's see this passage, which really spells it out for us, this concept. And um, in this passage, in Romans 10, Paul was talking about his Jewish brethren. He, he was like begging in his heart for the Jews to open their eyes and to turn to Christ. And he was talking about righteousness. Romans 10.1 Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. You remember all the talk about the gospel and how it's a saving faith is like a surrender to Christ. It's like trusting in him and not trusting in self. Well, there's a good passage to, you know, show you that concept. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You've got to ch- choose. Do you want to be righteous on your own under the law? Do you want to give that up because Christ did take care of it for you and turn to him for righteousness? Again, look at verse 3 and 4. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes or trusts in him. So how foolish, choosing to remain in darkness despite the glory of the Son of God in their presence. 
but that's how thick pride can be. Men today do the same things, trying to establish their own righteousness, not surrendering to Christ to receive his righteousness. Their pride gets in the way, and so they choose to stay in the darkness. Despite the good news that their God and Savior came to save them, like once for all. It's amazing how some people, even when you tell them I have good news for you, they don't want to receive it. It's too good to be true. Whatever excuse they want to throw out, throw out there, it really lies in pride. I'm going to take care of myself and earn my way with God. So it's pretty sad, obviously. We talked about this on Tuesday. It's one of the sad things in our lives to contemplate each day. When we think of our loved ones, our family members that are stuck in religion, who refuse to humble themselves before Christ, surrender to Christ. It's a sad contemplation. But Paul went through it. Jesus went through it. Our God went through the same type of suffering daily for the benefit of others, including solemn prayer for others, persistent prayer for others. It's really like a type of suffering, but it's good. They did it to God himself when he was on earth. They spit in his face, literally. So he went through it. We can go through much less for his name and even for his people. And we remember yet that God's in control, still showing the world his light and his love without partiality to this very day. And so we must do the same thing as his representatives, as his ambassadors. So praise be to our God and Savior, right? I mean, like, who is this amazing, merciful God that shows love impartially to all, even the worst of men? So a lot of the people in John chapter 1, a lot of his own people did not receive him. But some people did receive him. Some did receive him. He proclaimed himself to the whole world, and then he elects those whom he calls. He knows the hearts of men as it is. I read a neat verse this morning that applies here to this concept regarding the Jewish remnant that remains being God's gracious choice. Again, in John 1, we see some people did receive him. So you're in uh, Romans 10, I think, right? So go to Romans 11, verse 1. And let's see what Paul goes on to say, talking about his own people who rejected Christ for the most part. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. And what is the divine response to him? What does God say back to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice according to God's gracious choice. But if it were, or if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. 
Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. See, the remnant, those who did receive him in John chapter 1, they were chosen by grace, by the grace of God. God knowing the hearts of all men. And that's why they were saved. And God has these people, even in our own surrounding. Like we look at our family sometimes, we get discouraged. We look at our friends or... We, we, don't, we don't know what they truly believe, if they truly believe. But maybe we should take a little more heart also because God's the one that reserves people for himself. And God might have 7,000 more men in our periphery who he's already elected and chosen for himself by his own gracious choice. We don't know. But who do we rely on ourselves to convince people? We're going to see that coming up. Or do we rely on God to change people's hearts and just persistently pray and have faith that God could save the worst? In Bible study last night, we talked about being chosen or elected by God and what a privilege that is. But it's by God's gracious choice that he chose you. Right? Some of you think he made a mistake. Why did he choose me? But is it based on you or is it based on God's gracious choice? And if it's based on God's gracious choice, in verse 6, it's no longer on the basis of works. It's not about you and you deserving any of it. It's pretty incredible. But God was that purely gracious to you. Purely gracious. Don't forget it and remember it every day you wake up because that should be our motivation. You mean he chose me even though I know what I am and he knows a lot more about me than I don't even realize I am? He chose me anyway, totally by grace. If that doesn't motivate you to get through your day for him, then your eyes are on the wrong thing. Your eyes are forgetting the privilege of being chosen that it was totally by God's mercy and grace. So go back to John 1, verse 12. John 1, 12. This is how we're saved daily or delivered daily by remembering some of these basic things and not taking God's grace, for example, for granted. John 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even, though, even to those who believe or trust in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here we see, and trusting, that's what the word believe means, doesn't mean to believe Jesus existed. That doesn't save anybody. Trusting your life to Christ results in being born again. Born of the Spirit in John chapter 3. As we saw on Tuesday, those who received him in verse 12, they actually decided to take hold of him. Take hold of Jesus Christ as their own Lord and Savior. And that's a picture of salvation. What goes on in the heart of a man. With, a, with the heart a man believes in Romans chapter 10. It's a picture of salvation. It doesn't say, 
or it doesn't say what the English seems to say on the board, turning to Christ. The Greek word for received is lambano, and it's not passive at all like the English word received implies. Received, you know, you're sitting on a couch doing nothing, and somebody gives you a gift and you receive it. That's a passive thing, right? That's passive. You're sitting there, you're receiving, you're not actively doing anything. But the word receive in the, in the Greek here, it's in the active voice, not the passive voice. So it means that you're actually taking an action, uh, your own initiative, so to speak. And it means to take hold of. Not to receive as we might think of it in the English. So it means to take hold of Christ. As many as received him, as many as took hold of him, he gave the right to become children of God to those who trust in his name. These people realized the light when they saw him. Picture the Jews, right, who were witnessing his miracles, and some followed him and some didn't. But the ones that followed him, they saw the light, they, saw, they realized it was him, and they jumped at the chance to be saved, if you will. They took hold of him as their own Lord and Savior, receiving his grace offer by faith. And Jesus gives us several illustrations of this type of saving faith or, or what saving faith looks like. We've been through this for two or three years. And when you, as you read the Gospels, you know, now I see it all over the place where I never really saw it like this before. And I hope you're doing the same thing. But uh, the Spirit asked you to read Matthew 13, 44 through 46 on Tuesday evening. So turn to Matthew 13, 44. And now it's going to be a little pop quiz. Just kidding. Relax. But the Spirit suggested to you to read this and see how this correlates to uh, taking hold of Christ in your own heart. Matthew thirteen forty four, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Do you see the attitude of this person when they discover God's grace offer? That's someone that, that sees the light. That's someone that takes hold of him. I'll, I'll do whatever it takes because I found the great one pearl that I've been looking for. That's someone who appreciates Jesus Christ as the God-man, as Lord and Savior. On the board, turning to Christ, when a believer receives Christ, it's in this way, a la Matthew 13, 44 through 46. He takes hold of it because he realizes the grace he's being offered, being spared from judgment, and saved from himself, there's a certain response to the light of God's grace. There's like a definite, tangible result or response to the light of God's grace. What have we been learning? It comes in the form of different, different types of fruit as evidence of appreciating, understanding what's being offered and what, what you've been given. So again, on the board, when a believer receives Christ, it's in this way, as in Matthew 13, 
44 through 46, he takes hold of it in his heart because he realizes the grace he's being offered, being spared from judgment and saved from himself. There's a certain response to the light of God's grace. And all this grace came alive 2,000 years ago for our benefit in the form of a person, in the form of the God-man. And as John says, to those people who received him, he gave the right to become children of God, to those who trust in his name. We saw a few weeks ago in John chapter 3, the person who trusts in his name, in his person, not only receives eternal life, but is born again. So we're not going to go to John chapter 3 again today, but it's the same concept and very similar language to John chapter 1. So look again at John 1, 12, and 13. You still there? Guess not. <laughs> it's a lot of pages. So here he talks about that this person that receives him or takes hold of him becomes a child of God, is born of God. It's a spiritual birth. John 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God. This is a supernatural thing. Can a man make himself born of God? Or is God the one that has to do it? Let's just exam examine the options here given in this verse, which really aren't options at all. We're talking about a supernatural second birth granted to those, graciously granted to those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And John makes it clear you have to be born of God to be a child of God. You, you can't be born by another way that involves your own strength and wisdom in any way. Any way. And that cancels out all the religions in the whole world except true Christianity. Because every other religion is by works. Every other religion is, I'm going to figure out a way to please God on my own. And Jesus Christ says, you can't do it. There's no other way. You must be born of God to be a child of God. It has to be of God, not of man. So we're given three examples in this passage that are insufficient to become children of God. First of all, on the board, not of blood in John 1.13. Not of blood. One cannot become saved by being born into a Christian family. Unfortunately, a lot of so-called Christians think they are saved just because they were raised in a certain category called Christian. And if that's you, examine yourself. Are you, do you say you're Christian just because that's how you grew up, or do you say you're Christian because you personally surrendered to Christ for His righteousness, deeming yourself unrighteous? That's the only way to be saved. That's, that's a true Christian. So I think of, for example, the children of pastors. Even when I go you know, overseas on a mission trip, or I'm sure pastors saw this too, there's a concern that the children of pastors assume they're in with God. Because after all, their dad's the pastor. So they're in with God. 
And there may not be a personal accounting of faith or trust in Christ. There may not be. They might just go along for the ride on their father's coattails and think they're okay with God without a personal surrender to Christ. So nobody, you know, can do it for you. Because you're related to a faithful grandmother who fears God doesn't get you into heaven. Some people even go on living like hell, not following Christ at all, but depending upon their roots or, like this verse says, their blood, their bloodline, to be okay with God. Yet God looks at the heart of every man, and each man must decide for himself to receive him, or we should say to take hold of him, or to continue in rejection of him. On the board, we also see it's not of the will of the flesh. No matter how much you try to will yourself into God's family, maybe by your own goodness or striving to please God, this will not make you born again or born of God. Only God himself can do that by his gracious choice. So you've got to humble yourself before God. It's his gracious choice. Romans 11, we saw verses 5 and 6. As most of you know, God only accepts his way to salvation. And that is the God-man. Only God can give this new birth to man by grace. And a person does not have the will or the power or the willpower to save himself, period. That's what it says here, not of the will of the flesh. That's the lies of religion, giving man false hope of something that he cannot attain to. And then the third thing mentioned in this verse is not of the will of man. No person can decide for another person. No person can will another person to be saved. As much as you want to, you can't will somebody else to be saved. And someone can't will to save you. Each man's heart is accountable to the Lord. Grandma cannot believe for you. Nor can she talk to God for you. And because she's God-fearing, God grants you salvation. God is fair, perfectly fair and impartial, both in the grace he offers, but also in his requirement for salvation, that somebody be humble and believe. A pastor or an evangelist cannot will another person to be saved. Some people think that in some churches. We can certainly preach the good news and pray for people, but we cannot will someone else into heaven. And that's what this is saying. And Jesus said on the board in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So at the mercy of God, which is how it should be, even though arrogant people don't want to be at the mercy of God, that's the reality. But this merciful God says, just turn to me in humility and I will save you. Through Christ. So that's the person born of God, the one drawn by the Father, who is granted the faith to believe and trust in His Son. Remember, even the faith comes from God. Even the faith in Ephesians 2 is a gift from God. So you don't have it, you're struggling, you're doubting, or whatever, ask God. And when you humble yourself under His mighty hand like that, He 
is excited. He is happy to give you faith. So now we get to the final section of this prologue in John chapter 1. And there are also many deep, great principles here. We'll see what we get to. Go to John 1 verse 14. Our God truly is an awesome God. What a plan. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained or declared Him. So we continue to see the Lord's deity presented throughout this passage. And it just so happens this all-powerful one who came to visit us is also the Lord of grace. So you got to think about this, dwell on this. There couldn't be a greater picture of power and mercy coexisting. Here's the all-powerful one, choosing to limit himself into the fleshly form to bring pure grace to people and not judgment. It, it's mind-boggling that the one who can, has all power also has perfect mercy. I mean, when, when you think of somebody with power, don't you think of somebody who is going to abuse that power? With somebody with a lot of power, that's the tendency in this world, in the flesh. Look at Satan. But our Lord is perfect power and pure mercy at the same time. It's beyond, you know, words, but it's good to dwell on and be like, wow, how awesome is that, right? How awesome is he? His grace is the show of perfect love. And he came to seek and save the lost, not to hold his authority and power over our heads like a dictator. That's not why or how he came into this world. He came and ate dinner with the sinners and gently led them to repentance. And, and, and he's, Jesus is the illustration of the Father in heaven. He revealed him, right? Look at the end of verse 18. He has explained him. He has declared him. So just like grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, if you really appreciate the grace of God towards you, you will want to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. It doesn't mean you're perfect. We all sin. So we're talking about lifestyle here. We're talking about um, our attitude towards these things. Turn to uh, Titus chapter 2 to see one of my favorite passages. And it reveals how uh, grace does this for us and to us. Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live righteously. I think part of that is because it's just overwhelming when you stop and consider it. Titus 2 verse 11. 
for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Take that literally, right? We just read about the one who brought us grace upon grace. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. The appearing of the glory. Isn't that what we just read in John 1? Jesus is the glory of God manifested to us. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. A person who sees and takes hold of his gracious person, cannot help but be changed by it, overwhelmed even. And that's why the true believer can't help but follow him, this gracious and loving, all-powerful master. Again, perfect on both sides of the coin. He's our gracious and loving, all-powerful master. Go back to John 1, 14. So God's, God's glory appeared to us in, in, in a man. Not a likeness of God. God's glory. We know now God himself appeared to us in a man. In John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have received, and grace upon grace. We saw God's glory in a person. And what is God's glory? Is it his power? Is it this bright light that we can't look at? Or is it more than that? Is it different than that? You might remember this passage on the board in Exodus 33, 18 through 19. Moses was talking with God and said to God, I pray you, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. I want to see your face. And he said, God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. Remember our series on what is good? All good things are from God, our Father above, right? I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. There, my friends, is the glory to God. There's the glory of God. There's the answer to Moses' request. Show me your glory. What's more, you know, glory, glory, what's the word, gloryful? Is that a word? Glorious, thank you. What's more glorious to man? Hey, there's a lot of words I'm dealing with up here. (laughs) What's more glorious to man than an all-powerful master that is infinitely gracious and merciful? I don't know how to describe it. 
That's the glory of God to man, for sure. But that's who God is. That's who God is. He is love, and he showed himself in, the, in a person. And then he died on the cross on purpose, even though he made himself to- totally vulnerable to man. The Lord Jesus Christ came to us full of grace and truth, the only begotten from the Father, the one who existed before John the Baptist, the one from all eternity. He came bearing gifts, so to speak. He came with grace and truth for all who wanted to know him. Looking again at verse 16, John 1, 16. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. I mean, this is just like too wonderful to do it justice right now, honestly. We have 10 minutes left. I can't do it justice, but dwell on it yourself. (laughs) Grace upon grace. What does that mean? But that's him. It's grace cast towards sinners like a cleansing water with no price attached for whomever will receive him, for whoever will take hold of him. His grace is too wonderful to comprehend. Considering the law says we're all guilty and deserving of death. Compare those two. Yet the Lord, even knowing his ultimate fate at the hands of sinners, poured out his grace upon grace upon the undeserving. Came to enlighten all men. And then there's the perfect balance of our Lord, though, right? He knows how to be perfectly gracious without compromising the truth, which is himself. He is the word. He is the truth. He can't compromise who he is. And yet he has mastered, as only the master can, how to be perfectly, purely gracious and stand firm in the truth. I like what Mr. McDonald has to say about this on the board. The Savior was full of grace and truth. On the one hand, full of undeserved kindness for others. He was also completely honest and upright, and he never excused sin or approved evil. To be completely gracious and at the same time completely righteous is something that only God can be. So none of us are going to do it perfectly this thing called life, but if we rely on him, if we uh, humbly seek the filling of the Spirit, repent when we need to repent, etc., God's going to show us how to do this. Not perfectly like him, but that's what makes him him. That's why he's full of grace and truth. And that phrase, grace and truth, it's mentioned again by, um, about our Lord and his appearance in verse 17. Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law was given to man to clearly reveal his sinfulness and helplessness before a perfectly righteous God. But God manifested himself through the person of Jesus Christ to reveal his heart of compassion towards his sinful creatures. On the board... The Lord Jesus brought grace and truth, never compromising the truth about sin and death, but offering grace in the face of guilt. 
He was perfect on both sides of the coin, full of grace and truth. The Lord Jesus brought grace and truth, never compromising the truth about sin and death, but offering grace in the face of guilt. The Lord might say, yes, you're guilty, but I'm here. Trust in me and I'll save you by grace. He's not going to call them not guilty, right? Like people do today. Oh, it's not that bad what they're doing, even though it's directly against the word of God. We've learned, call a spade a spade, right? Let's at least be honest. And we can tell the truth in love, like we're told to do in the scripture, like Jesus did. He was the truth in love in a person. So he might say, you know, I know you're guilty, but here I am. Trust in me, in humility, and I'll save you by grace. So grace and truth were literally realized in a person, perfectly. This was God revealing his perfect glory to man. And this is seen again in our last verse, verse 18. Who is this only begotten one? Look at verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So no one has seen God at any time. But Jesus Christ has explained him. Jesus Christ became flesh so we could see God's heart. First of all, the only begotten God here would be better translated the only begotten son because there is no Greek word for God in the original language, just so you know. So it's better to say the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father. He has explained him. We see that Jesus, the son of God, has declared or explained God the Father to the world. Perfectly. And he and the Father are one, remember, according to Holy Scripture. This is where it gets deep. This is where we have to have the faith of a child to accept this and believe what the Word is telling us. Here we see further intimacy and oneness of the Trinity. Turn to John 14, verse 7, as we begin to close. John 14, verse 7. So in John 1.18, it says, you know, he, Jesus, explained or declared the Father. Perfectly, by the way. John 14.7, Jesus is speaking. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. The Father. Remember the one in verse 18 that no one seen God at any time? Jesus said, from now on, you Know him and have seen him. Is it any clearer than that? But what does Philip say in verse 8? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Apparently it's not, Philip. (laughs) We might call him doubting Philip. There's more than one doubting Thomas. Philip said, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? By the way, notice how the Lord challenged people's faith in love, but he was very truthful, honest. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, 
but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, if you don't believe, believe because of the works themselves. Look at what I've done. Look at all the miracles, if you must. Even though Philip wouldn't believe that Jesus said, or what Jesus said about his oneness with the Father, Jesus' wisdom was vindicated by his deeds, as we've seen in the past recently. His perfect works, in other words, were the proof of his claims to oneness with the Father. So if you're scratching your head and you're like, I just don't understand how Jesus is one with the Father. You don't, okay, that's fine. You don't have to understand. Believe his works. If his works are perfect, then you can believe his words. If his works are pure and pure goodness, which they were, then you just got to believe his words. He proved his words were good by his good works. So on the board, one forever and always. The word, God, became flesh and dwelt among us in John 1.14. But he was never separate from the other members of the Godhead. Even though the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he was never separate from the other members of the Godhead. In fact, he was their perfect representative in the flesh, shining for all to see. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Look at John 12, verse 44. John 12, 44. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. Think about that for a minute. I've been noticing this more in Scripture lately. There's a few times that, that Jesus says this. When you believe in me, you're not believing in me. You're believing in the one who sent me, the Father. What's going on here? I thought I had to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Well, he's just saying, when you believe in me, you're actually believing in him. Because guess what? We're one and the same. He who sees me, in verse 15, sees the one who sent me. <laughs> Philip. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. The glory of the grace of God. So as we close, here are a few more plain statements about how Jesus is related to God the Father on the board. And these are only a few. Jesus and the Father. In Hebrews 1.3, it says, He, Jesus, is the exact representation of His nature. In Philippians 2.6, it says, He existed in the form of God. These are all very direct, aren't they? They're not like he's like God. He's kind of like God. He existed in the form of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, talking about Jesus, who is the image of God. John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. John 14.9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And then we can think all the way back to Micah's prophecy in 5.2 about the child being born, being called eternal father. 
it's hard to put this into words, but it's like there's no separation between the two. Even though they are individuals in the Trinity, persons, if you will, they're truly one. And this will remain a mystery probably for all eternity. And that should be okay with us. But let's believe the word with the faith of a child. Don't ever accept someone's word about Jesus as being less than God or less than the Father. Because they believe in another Jesus if that's what they preach. So again, Jesus and the Father, he is the exact representation of his nature. He existed in the form of God. He is the image of God. I and the Father are one. And he who has seen me has seen the Father. So the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have met the God-man, Jesus Christ, and His Word. And His Word explains all about Him in all of His glory. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank You so much for Your amazing Word and Your amazing grace and Your amazing truth. We thank You for the Lord becoming a man full of grace and truth, to show us your purity on both sides of the coin, your pure grace, your pure truth, the all-powerful one becoming man for our benefit. These things are overwhelming and unbelievable to those without faith. But by faith, Father, we accept these things. We have joy and peace in these things that you've revealed yourself fully to us, not hiding who you are. We thank you for the person of Jesus Christ. We ask that you help us share these things out there in the lost and dying world that we live in. They need it so desperately, Father. But we know you're in control at the same time. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen.